on the road between Orlando and Gainesville, Florida, a small city in Florida's horse country, Ocala, Florida, is the home of a distribution center for the online pet supply retailer, Chewy. And at Chewy's Ocala, Florida warehouse, a forklift operator was crushed and killed in what is known as an underride accident, an accident where a forklift operator might back into a structure uh, at a portion of the forklift that's unguarded and thereby striking the operator himself or herself. And that's what happened at Chewy's warehouse in Ocala. Chewy's defense to the citation that OSHA issued was that it had fully complied with OSHA's powered industrial trucks standard, section 178, and therefore could not be held liable under a general duty clause uh, alleged violation. An administrative law judge reviewed the citation and uh, disagreed with Chewy, and that went up to the review commission, and the review commission agreed with both OSHA and the administrative law judge. Chewy brought this matter before the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit, and the 11th Circuit reversed, stating that the hazard of an underride uh, striking a uh, operator was addressed by the powered industrial truck standard, and therefore OSHA should not be bringing this under the general duty clause, and that Chewy could not be held liable under the general duty clause. We're going to cover that standard, the the decision in Chewy, and what this means for the employer community as we move forward in this episode for June 14, 2023 of the OSHA 3030. Hello, everyone. I'm Manish Rath. I'm an attorney at the law firm Keller and Heckman here in Washington, D.C., and I practice in the field of occupational safety and health law. Uh, I've been doing this for almost 30 years, and I've been putting this uh, material on as a podcast for the OSHA 3030 for almost a full 10 years now. I'm grateful that on this episode, as with many of the episodes in the past few years, I've been, uh, I'm accompanied by my my good friend and my colleague, Taylor Johnson. Taylor, welcome to the OSHA 3030. Manish, thanks for having me, as always. Well, we've got a great topic, as always. This is a question of the scope and applicability of the general duty clause, particularly when an employer feels like there's a specific standard that covers the matter being cited. So so what, what are we going to talk about today? Yeah. Um, so first, we're going to start with just a, a basic primer and what the general duty clause is. Um, and then we're going to discuss um, an earlier case, um, a 1987 D.C. Circuit case, uh, U.S. Department of Labor versus General Dynamics. Um, we'll then go into the 11th Circuit Chewy case, uh, Chewy versus the Department of Labor. Uh, we'll review the ALJ's decision and the 11th Circuit's decision in that case. And then, as we always do, uh, we'll wrap up with what employers should do, uh, some practical takeaway items for folks to bring back to their workplace. Right. This is a pre-recorded episode, so we will not have a off-the-record section specifically for our live audience. Uh, and we apologize for that. We really love the off-the-record section. We get yes. some great questions from members of the OSHA 3030 community. So keep those questions coming. Send the emails in. We'll we'll hope to do another off-the-record session, uh, hopefully next time. Uh, but let's get into the Chewy case, starting with 
a discussion of the general duty clause. So the general duty clause, it comes from the act itself, the Occupational Safety and Health Act of 1970. And that is the statute that enables, first of all, the agency itself, and it empowers the agency to promulgate standards. OSHA has promulgated many standards under that act. But there's also another clause in the act that says that there is a general duty for employers to provide a workplace that's helpful and safe for workers. And this idea is uh, the, the foundation for citations alleging a violation of this clause. So the, it, it's a higher standard for the agency to have to establish a violation of the general duty clause than to establish a violation under a specific standard. The thinking going that the process of promulgating a standard is the opportunity for OSHA to establish a lot of the elements of a violation, including the idea that there is a hazard and that it's recognized by industry and this economic and technical feasibility question. They should all be addressed in rulemaking for a specific standard. But the general duty clause, if OSHA is not citing under a uh, specific standard, but citing under the general duty clause, it now, in the context of a specific citation, has to establish those elements. So now, citing under the general duty clause instead of a specific standard, OSHA has to meet four prima facie elements in order to prove that the general duty clause was violated. That's right, Manish. And the first is that workers were exposed to the hazard. This is actually the one carryover from the four general elements that OSHA needs to prove on, on a regular citation. Yeah, need to prove exposure. Always employee exposure is elemental in every citation. And the second, that the hazard that they're alleging is a generally recognized hazard. Third, that the alleged hazard was likely to cause or did cause um, death or serious physical harm. Right. And finally, that if OSHA is alleging a violation of the general duty clause, it has to establish that there is a feasible means of abatement. So these are the four elements that OSHA has to establish anytime it provides a uh, allegation of a violation of the general duty clause. But let's talk about a case that, that was decided, I think, in 1986? 87. 87. Thank you. Good job, Taylor. And that's the U.S. Department of Labor versus General Dynamics? Right. Um, so what happened in this case is that there were multiple reports on incidents of, of employees um, who were reporting ill, um, certain physical symptoms uh, due to alleged Freon exposure. The Freon was actually used um, in the plant at the time uh, to clean up oil spills. And so OSHA came out, did an investigation, and they issued General Dynamics a general duty clause a citation. It's an interesting case because there is a Freon standard, and they chose to issue a general duty clause citation violation. Right, exactly. They essentially chose to do this because what was happening at the time was that the workers were inside of a confined space. Um, this is actually pre-confined space standard. Yeah, it was the um, it was a, it was a tank, right? Right, exactly. The hull of a, of an M1 Abrams tank, I believe. And so what was happening is, um, I think OSHA's argument was that sort of the general uh, levels set for freon exposure did not cover this particular sort of concentrated air situation um, that the workers were exposed to. Right, they were pouring freon into the engine block, the engine exactly. cavity, as well as into the turrets is that right, right for yep. okay so that that for the purpose of removing oil yes uh so that that they believed was not in, contemplated within the scope of the freon standard and so the they believed that the general duty clause was all they had left the court the court felt yeah the court agreed with osha uh, they said that in this case um the compliance with the air contaminant standard um, was not enough to get general dynamics out of a general duty clause violation 
And then in general, that compliance with OSHA standards, you know, does not per se discharge your statutory obligation to provide employees um, with safeguards against recognized hazards. Right. It's hard to say I agree or disagree. I think that the relevant space that they may or may not have exceeded the permissible exposure limits to should have been the confined space into which the Freon was being mm -hmm. uh, released. And in that context, they may have violated the specific standard, uh, resulting in OSHA not having to use the general duty clause. Certainly. So I'm not sure that that's a persuasive case. But, you know, when you talk about the release of a hazardous chemical that is potentially fatal in its exposure, it's understandable that the court would uh, maybe uh, come to the conclusion it did just to get to the result it wanted to. Okay, so we wanted to talk about that case as background because it really sets down a position that some in the OSHA community have relied on that the specific standard may not be the beginning and end of, of the story and that that it's possible for OSHA to exceed the boundaries of a specific standard and use the general duty clause uh, to issue a, a citation. But let's talk about the Chewy case that we're here for today. Yeah. So Chewy operates a warehouse um, in Ocala, Florida. Um, and then what, what happened here is that a forklift operator was crushed and killed um, in, in an underride accident. So a forklift underride accident, it, it occurs when the forklift operator travels with the forks trailing, backs up into a storage rack um, so far that the forklift passes beneath the horizontal crossbar, sort of enters the driver's area, and then can crush you know, the operator inside the compartment. So that's what an underride is. And when that happened at the Chewy Ocala, Florida site, the compliance officer conducted an investigation and cited Chewy. And they cited them under the general duty clause. Remember, the fourth target that OSHA has to meet under the general duty clause is that there's a feasible means of abatement. And uh, and Chewy, of course, contested the citation, as we've already said. But one of the things that became an issue of contention between the two was this idea that there's a feasible means of abatement. The compliance officer said, well, you could have put a lower shelving down than the the lowest shelf. The lowest shelf was so high that it created a, a possible struck by or underride uh, hazard. And the alternative would be to have put on an add-on guard on the forklift itself. Either way, something would have struck first rather than the operator right. being struck. Either the lower shelf would have hit a portion of the forklift or the bumper would have hit the shelving. So that was the final element, which is the feasible means of abatement question. Right. Yeah. And specifically on that point, just to give a little more background. So there were two prior incidents uh, with forklifts at this facility um, in 2018. And the safety manager for Chewy at the time did actually recommend that specific measure of abatement monitor that we should just lower the the height of the of the shelving itself to prevent this from happening. Management decided to not pursue that option. Um, but that the fact that that was out there, I think definitely you know, cut against Chewy in this case. Right. Chewy argued that whether or not they had to or could have implemented these simple fixes to the shelving or to the powered industrial trucks, they didn't have to face this analysis in court right. because they did comply with the powered industrial truck standard. Right. And it's a compelling argument, but the administrative law judge disagreed with Chewy and sided with the secretary. Right. And the secretary's main argument really is that the specific hazard here, so the, the hazard of an underride, is not squarely addressed in the powered industrial truck standard. And so that's sort of the reason why they go to general duty clause here. That's that's what they they really need to prove in order for their argument to win the day is that you may have, and you do have training aspects of the powered industrial truck standard and sort of safe operation guidelines that Chewy hangs its hat on. But the secretary says that that's not enough. They're allowed to go outside the bounds 
of the powered industrial truck standard here and go to general duty because that specific underride hazard is not squarely addressed. Right. Taylor, let me say that a different way. The secretary argued that when you look at the powered industrial truck standard, it doesn't specifically address underride hazards. Right. And so we should be entitled, OSHA said, to use the general duty clause. Right. Chewy's argument was, well, if you look at the powered industrial truck standard, it actually does address underwriting hazards in the form of its training requirement. It requires that employers conduct training to teach workers how to use powered industrial trucks safely, including how to deal with underwrite hazards to wit, uh, for example, to always look in the direction of travel of the of the powered industrial truck, which would have prevented this hazard in the first place. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, it is addressed, Chewy argues. The administrative law judge did not agree that training by itself covers it, and nor, for that matter, did the review commission. Exactly. So, so the administrative law judge essentially says that you know Chewy's methods here uh, were inadequate, and clearly because you know this accident occurred, that you know Chewy did not prove that the power industrial truck standard preempted the general duty clause, and that OSHA was able to prove all four elements of its general duty clause violation. So the ALJ affirms the citation, um, and then it goes to the Eleventh Circuit. One of the other things that that Chewy argued was, well, and the 11th Circuit, I think, relies on this, is when you look at the power industrial truck standard, it does address the possibility of running into or striking uh, parts of a building such as columns. And in that sense, the power industrial truck standard is one that covers this kind of underwriting hazard. Uh, But I, I don't think it's on the face of the standard. Exactly. So I had to take a, another look at this when I was reviewing this case. Um, the the mention of columns and sort of backing into structures is actually in the preamble to the powered industrial truck standard. Not if you do a search in that standard for the word column, um, you will not find that in there. And so that's sort of the the slight nuance here that that we're trying to parse out. Right. And so this is interesting because when you look at the preamble, it should be treated as an interpretation. It has interpretive value. Maybe it's not on the face of the standard, but but what the agency was saying at the time of promulgating the standard is, we believe the standard means this, and that's why we put it in the preamble. And one of the things they said it, they believe it means is that it uh, has concerns about running into columns or other parts of the building, and that would include underwriting hazards, I would think. So the 11th Circuit isn't entirely off base or without foundation in pointing to that preambulatory language. Okay, so the 11th Circuit's decision is we agree with Chewy, and we think that it's somewhere in the four corners of the standard, perhaps explained better in the preamble, but Mm -hmm. it's there, Mm -hmm. and that the use of the general duty clause is inappropriate because there is a standard on point. Right. And so, you know, one of the key questions moving forward, I think, is how do we reconcile these cases? How do we reconcile the 1987 you know, general dynamics case, which essentially says you can't just operate in the four corners of a standard. Um, you can't. That's not an adequate defense if there was a clear, you know, feasible method of making your workplace safer that existed. You know, you contradict that with what happened in Chewy, where it almost thinks, you know, it, it almost seems like if you read that in a vacuum that you could just throw your hands up and say, I, I complied with the standard, um, you know, and there was nothing else I needed to do here. I do think, Manish, that that's a dangerous position for the employer community to take moving forward. I, I don't think that I would I would feel strongly advising clients to just say, okay, you complied with the standard. You don't need to look around beyond that to see if there are other feasible things that you can do to make your workplace safer. I would, I would strongly caution against re- using the holding here of Chewy to sort of justify that sort of head in the sand approach. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think the the 
the way to reconcile these two cases is simply to to recognize that every case is fact specific and and you know the freon standard is very different by virtue of being a health standard for uh, exposure to a hazardous substance sure and the circumstances in which general dynamics was applying that hazardous substance being so at variation with the general exposure uh, sort of circumstance that was contemplated by the freon standard and and here we have a, a very different set of facts and a very different circumstance. I find myself in the sort of difficult position of disagreeing with both decisions. I think that the Freon standard actually did cover the exposures General Dynamics was engaged in, and they should have measured with respect to inside the confined space, whether or not they'd exceeded the permissible exposure limit. And I think that's what OSHA should have cited to, is exposures inside the tank. Right. Um, where where General Dynamics was clearly sending workers into that confined space to perform work after the Freon was poured in. Here, however, I'm not sure that I agree with the Chewy argument or the 11th Circuits. I think there's a very solid argument for OSHA to make that modifications to shelving shouldn't be covered under the powered industrial truck standard and merely complying with the powered industrial truck standard doesn't absolve them of the need to look at the kind of modifications they can make to the shelving. Uh, perhaps perhaps that's more closely covered under the materials handling standard, or uh, but, but arguably neither the materials handling standard or the powered industrial truck standard cover it. But that's precisely the point I think Ocean was trying to urge upon the court, is that that's why it sort of falls in between the two and ought to be addressed by the general duty clause. In fact, I think this is a stronger case for use of the general duty clause than than was exhibited in the general dynamics yeah. case. Yeah. Uh, so I think that the the message here is that every fact pattern is going to be different. And that's to your point, Taylor, that it wouldn't be uh, wise to rely solely on compliance with the standard to absolve you from having to look around, see whether there are additional hazards not covered or not adequately covered by standard, and whether there's more that can be done to improve safety. I think that really here, one of the most compelling features to me, Taylor, was whether or not other employers in warehousing and distribution were taking precautions, but did they have such high shelving as their lowest shelf right. or had they put modifications onto the forklift? I seem to me, it seems to me that uh, the easiest modification would be to the shelving than to the forklifts because they're not in the space of manufacturing or designing forklifts or powered industrial trucks, but they, they are the ones who install the shelving mm -hmm. and have some significant level of expertise about that and their product type that's coming in and why the first shelf has to be so high. That to me is, is the loss. I mean, you, Taylor, you and I have walked through warehousing distribution fulfillment centers at some of the largest employers in the country. Yep. And we don't see the highest, the lowest shelf being so high as to create that kind of underwriting hazard. Right. So, so to, what's my point, I think is that, that maybe one of the things that Chewy could have done was to, to take stock of of what industry standards look like, what what generally used methods would be at similar employers, to engage in their community of uh, fellow employers in, in similar activities, and to learn uh, from sh you know a shared sort of uh, knowledge of of what practices are working. Yep, and I think just reading the tea leaves here, one thing you know that you could see moving forward as a result of this decision 
is that OSHA could update the powered industrial truck standard to specifically sort of take the language from the preamble and move it into the standard itself, you know, right. put in the words columns or, you know, make sure that they're sort of, you know, covering themselves there so that they're not susceptible to, you know, the the, the outcome of the 11th Circuit, you know, moving forward. You know, that's right. They they could not only do so now, but they could have done that at any time. Sure. And but the rulemaking process is certainly lengthy. Yep. Uh, if if the 11th Circuit believes that this was somehow covered in the standard, I think that the the hidden menace to an opinion like that is that it, it gives the agency the opportunity to argue that this could be addressed through interpretive guidance. But we we don't see it that way. I, I think that this would require rulemaking if indeed OSHA has taken the position that it's not covered under the powered industrial truck standard. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that they would have to go through that lengthy rulemaking process. But I think that there is adequate data out there to support the idea that this is a uh, recognized hazard and, and that it, there are feasible, inexpensive means of abatement merely through adjusting or shelving. Uh, so hopefully that kind of rulemaking wouldn't be uh, amongst the most involved in protracted and lengthy rulemaking processes. Right. All right. Well, we've talked about some of the things employers should do. Let's talk about more things that we think employers should do in light of the Chewy case. Sure. So I think the first one is that after each incident, uh, conduct an incident analysis and then take a look at your safety protocols and, and update them based on that. In this specific case that, you know, this is exactly what Chewy did. Their compliance and, and uh, health manager sort of came up with this idea. Hey, why don't we lower the shelving? It ended up not moving forward with it. Um, but I think that's definitely a lesson learned here. You know, could have prevented this from happening. Right, Taylor. Well, one additional fact about this case that that makes your point especially compelling is that Prior to the incident where a forklift operator it was engaged in un, an underwriting accident and died from it, there was a prior underwriting event at that facility that resulted in an injury to that worker. Right. And so what you're saying is that the safety and health folk examined that earlier incident that resulted in an injury and concluded what? That lowering the shelves was the right yes. remedy? Yes. And that sort of exercise of analyzing an incident and coming up with maybe whether or not there there are available remediations that could prevent recurrence is one of the things that employers could do that they could take a lesson from the Chewy case and, and implement going forward. Yeah. But I think a lot of employers do. I think another thing an employer can do in light of the Chewy case is take a look at instances where employers, employees or workers are not following their training and document and discipline those workers. You, you have to have a record, uh, uh, an involved record of uh, monitoring and supervising employees. And when you discover nonconformity to their training to, to document it and to discipline those workers, that may or may not apply here. But I think that that is an established uh, recommendation simply in order to use the unpreventable employee misconduct defense if an employer ever has the opportunity to use that defense. So the next one is consider putting new employees under closer supervision uh, and evaluating their safety performance. Um, So in this particular case, the Chewy case, um, the operator of of the forklift was new to the job. So, you know, I think making sure that you're evaluating, you know, their sort of, you know, first few days, you know, their safety performance and and sort of implementing any necessary, you know, precautionary measures that you can take based on that is certainly a good idea. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Taylor. And the next one, I'd say, you know, whether or not, Taylor, the folks in the OSHA 3030 community agree or don't agree, 
with Chewy's arguments that they did indeed comply with the power industrial truck standard. Uh, I think we can all agree that complying with a standard is sometimes merely the starting point for a hazard analysis. And that once an employer has achieved compliance with a standard, sometimes the the day-to-day practices sort of roll back from that point of compliance. But in addition, there may be other hazards that the standard may not address perfectly and that other employers have found solutions to, uh, or that that through imagination and innovation, that employer might find a, a solution to. And so it's important to comply with the standard and then begin the next step, which is evaluating additional possible hazards through a hazard assessment and trying to find uh, reasonable means of abating or remediating against those hazards. Right. And then finally, review your workplace um, designs um, as your company evolves to see if any new standards are applicable. Um, one of the things that happened in the general dynamics case was that all of a sudden, you know, they were operating in confined spaces. And, and so sort of taking a step back and looking at that and evaluating based on, you know, your, your ever-changing workplace and making sure that you're in compliance with any new standards that you could find yourself under is certainly another good idea. Yeah, and that's right. And Taylor, and when it comes to the the space, the sector for distribution and warehousing, something that you and I do a lot of, uh, new product is always rolling in, or the same product is rolling in with new packaging, mm-hmm. changing its size and um, the lifting and uh, materials handling processes. And so that changes the shelving. The shelving goes up and down and up and down to, to accommodate evolutions in the in and out of a distribution center. And so so that's another example of having to review workplace designs as the company evolves, the minute you establish a perfect layout for your facility, <laughs> somebody's going to drop a new product in an aisleway or mm-hmm. against a wall that happens to block an exit or something like that. Things are just constantly in flux, and entropy uh, is the one constant in a workplace. And so, so constantly reevaluating workplace designs uh, is just a necessary part of of the day to day of of any manufacturing or distribution center. Uh, okay, well. Taylor, I think I got the last word on this episode. This is uh, one of the episodes that we've been doing for over 10 years now. All of them we've posted on our website at khlaw.com slash OSHA 3030. Uh, and since we've been doing this for almost 10 years, I think there's almost 120 episodes. I believe August will be our anniversary. September will begin our new year and our new decade. Uh, you can catch more updates from us through LinkedIn. I hope you've all gone onto your LinkedIn account and uh, established connections with both Taylor Johnson and myself and other attorneys here at Keller and Heckman, both in our OSHA practice, as well as our several other practices. Um, We'll repost this episode as a video on our website, khlaw.com slash OSHA 3030. So check us out. If you're going to watch us on the YouTube video or on uh, listen to us or download or subscribe to the podcast, first of all, please subscribe. And second of all, please remember to to like or rate the program so that it's more easily found by others in the safety and health profession and by in-house counsel responsible for OSHA compliance. Uh, With that said, our next episode, Taylor, we always do this in about 30 minutes and we do it about every 30 days. So the next one will be at 1 p.m. Eastern on July 19th, 2023, always on a Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern. Uh, So July 19th, stay tuned uh, for, uh, for an email invitation and uh, register for that program when you get that email invitation. But but also, as importantly, you've heard us say this before, when you get that email invitation, please forward it on to three others within your organization or at other organizations, in-house counsel and safety and health professionals responsible for complying with OSHA law. Uh, in addition, we have sister programs, the REACH 3030, the TOSCA 3030. Our next programs for those will be 
at 10 a.m. June 21 and 1 p.m. June 21 Eastern time. Uh, so if your company is engaged in activities that are regulated by those statutes, please, those regulatory schema, I should say, please check out the REACH 3030 and the TOSCA 3032, other great programs we do here at Keller Heckman. Well, on behalf of everyone at Keller Heckman, and I'd like to thank all of the folk on our team at the firm uh, who helped put this program together, and as well, my colleague, Taylor Johnson. Uh, and on behalf of all of us, thank you, members of the OSHA 3030 community for participating. We look forward to seeing you again next month. And until then, stay safe. Mm -hmm.